everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Hickory in General Podcast. I am Al, and joining me today is Lou. How's it going, Lou? Going pretty well. How are you doing tonight, Al? Well, I'm about to lose my sanity uh, because this is actually like, what, the third or fourth time we've tried recording this episode tonight. Um, I've been having some internet issues, I think, on my side where my signal keeps dropping out and... Uh, we so this is like I think the third or fourth time we've tried to record this this episode, but hopefully uh, all our efforts will pay off. And I, I think this is going to be a really good episode because it, we're going to be talking about something today that's very near and dear to both Lou and I. And you know we're the same age. You know both of us are forty one right now, and we had the good fortune of being old enough to start playing video games in a magical time that was called the golden age of the arcade. And depending on who you ask, exactly when the golden age of the arcade began is up for a matter of debate. Um, Now, as far as I know, most people place it around 78, 79, because that was when the world was introduced to Space Invaders. You know, once that game became really popular you know, these, these young video game companies started to realize that, hey, you know, you can make decent money by producing these machines. And looking back, there were a lot of video game franchises that started out during uh, this era that moved well beyond the arcade to home consoles and would eventually spawn entire franchises. For example, Mario and Donkey Kong. But Let's go back and take a look at how we remember the arcades when we were young. So, uh, we, simpler time. Oh, yes. Don't grow up, kids. It's a trap. Now, Lou and I both grew up in different areas. I grew up in uh, New Berlin. It's a part of Waukesha County, southeast Wisconsin. And I know right now you're living in uh, north-central Wisconsin. Is that where you've lived pretty much uh, most of your life? That's where I grew up and where I'm currently living. Yeah, I'm up in Wausau, and I'm pretty much smack dab in the center. Down where I lived, arcades, they had this reputation of being these houses of ill repute because it was supposedly contributing to truancy because there was this moral panic that kids would go there to skip school or, you know, they would go there to, they would spend more time playing video games than uh, doing other things or doing homework. And the the arcade that I remember going to when I was a kid was called Aladdin's Castle. And it was kind of in that back corner of the mall. It was in that wing that I think there were only like two or three other stores in that place. And you think about it, arcades, they're dark. They're loud. You know, a lot of people conjugate there. So there were rumors that that's where people would go to, you know, maybe do a little drug transaction because it would be kind of easy to to uh, do something like that in a dark, crowded, noisy environment. But what about you where where you grew up? I mean, what kind of a reputation did arcades have in more the the north central part of the state? You know, and I our arcade actually was in Aladdin's Castle also. Um, ours, I guess maybe it's just me having, you know, blinders on, but ours really wasn't that bad in the start. I know our mall opened in 1982. 
And the only reason I know that is because there were some Facebook things recently talking about the opening of it. And our arcade was right in the front doors. I mean, it wasn't hidden in the back or anything. It was right across from uh, Diamond Dave's Mexican restaurant bar and right next to a McDonald's, which to me made it seem like they just they dropped their kids off at the arcade with a roll of quarters and said, go to town while they shopped in the rest of the mall and let the electronic babysitter do the work. <laughs> um, but that being said, I mean, yes, it was loud. But then again, you know, all of these games were had to uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They had to compete with each other. Their attract modes said, you know, no, play me, no, play me. And of course, people, I'll be honest, cheered when something cool happened. Um, and it was it was packed with people on certain days. Um, but that, I think, was the charm. Was there some underhanded things going on? Possibly, but I can't see how it would be any worse than going to the loading dock of the mall because it's dark, secluded, and there'd probably be even less people there to see you doing things. Yeah, and, you know, really during the early 80s, I mean, you saw video games in so many places other than the, you know, the arcade in the mall. You know, you could see them in you know, like laundromats, and you could also see them in, you know, hotels. I mean, uh, one of my favorite places to go in a, one of the hotels we stayed at is, you know, they, they had the arcade just right off where the pool was. And, you know, you got that, that chlorine smell from the pool, and, you know, it was nice, fresh, and clean, and you, you know, could sit there playing video games, and, uh, you know, well, your parents go relax on one of the, the beach chairs they had. So that was always one of my fond memories. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. You should mention that. And because our right off of 51 going North, there's a place that used to be called rib mountain travel center. And we went for a new year's thing when I was with my mom and dad and my sister and everything, they had arcade games in the pool room, just like you're talking about. And I just remember there being a gauntlet four player gauntlet machine. And, and it kept, saying, you know, the little digitized speech thing. I'm like, but I want to swim, but I want to play video games. What's no. <laughs> yep. And roller skating rinks and pizza parlors were other places oh, yeah. that uh, you normally uh, would see a lot of arcade games. Now, getting as far as when the golden age of the arcade ended, pretty much up for a matter of debate. Some people pointed at you know, around 83, 84, about the same time as the video, the home video game crash. Other people say it probably would have, you know, happened a bit later. And we were chatting about this a little bit before we started recording, um, you know, some, you know, video game scholars. And because apparently there are people out there that do a lot of real in-depth research on video games, you know, their history, game design theory and all that. And... I mean, wouldn't doesn't that just sound like a dream job, video game scholar? I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to go to your high school reunion and, you know, people are saying, you know, like, oh, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a rocket scientist for NASA, what do you do? I'm a video game scholar. You know, screw my high school reunion, I tell every damn person I know. <laughs> I mean, that would be like the best job, one of the best jobs ever. And just like, you know, everybody as kids were like, oh, video game tester, or video game, you know, review writer and everything else. And of course, the people who do it are just like, no, no, no. But as someone from the outside looking in, that looks like a dream. Oh, yeah, exactly. And and now, of course, there's there are several factors that uh, con- that 
played into the end of the golden age of the arcade. And again, before we started recording or actually one of our previous attempts, we were, (laughs) you know, chatting a little bit about what we think, you know, could have contributed to the decline of the arcade. And one of the things that you were mentioning is that you had to look at the difference between the home systems back in the late seventies, early nineties, and what was going on in the arcades. So why don't you go ahead and elaborate on that a, a little bit more for us? Absolutely. Um, you know, and really when you think about it, like the late seventies, that's going to be your Atari, your Odyssey, your ColecoVision era. The games themselves didn't really look like the arcades. I mean, you could have a game and infamously Pac-Man. I mean, yeah, you're eating dots, you're being chased by ghosts, but you really had to use your imagination if you do remember the Atari 2600 version. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, Donkey Kong's another one. It You kind of looked like what you were doing, but it was still really imagination-inducing. Space Invaders Asteroids looked a little bit better. Um, but it still was a far cry from the graphics and sound of the arcade. Plus, a lot of these were only single-player games or hot seat where you'd have to pass the controller back and forth, whereas when you're in the arcade, you can both play at the same time. So better graphics, better sound, social. Um, I don't think the arcade owners were really too concerned about it. Fast forward to, God, what when did uh, Nintendo Entertainment System Hall? Was it 84, 85, something like that? I think it was, yeah, like around 85, 86. That, I think, is when arcade owners started to get nervous. Um, and that was because if you, to let's take Donkey Kong again, for example. If you put their side-by-side pictures, they're pretty darn close. I mean, you might miss a few levels, but sound-wise, graphics-wise, they're about as close as you're going to get without owning the actual arcade machine or about or without cheating. Exactly. Um, um, and again, you mentioned Pac-Man, and that's a great example. Because, uh, again, you look at the Atari 26 ver- Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man, and it's kind of there, but it, it doesn't... It doesn't look exactly the same way because they had to orient it so that it would fit on a TV screen. And just a little bit of a useless trivia for you. Do you know why the background is blue in the home version of Pac-Man? I don't. Well, it was actually because the Atari decided to make this policy at the time where black backgrounds could only be used for space games. So even though there was a background black background in the arcade version of pac-man the uh atari policy is like well it's not outer space so we can't use black so they had to use blue but you know again you look at that and compare it to the nintendo entertainment system version of pac-man uh you know again while the there still is a little bit of a graphical difference just the way it looks on the screen it's a lot closer to what you'd be used to in an arcade oh yeah but you made a good point there. I mean, around the time when the it went from the, I think it would have been like the second generation into the third generation, uh, if I'm if I have my uh, my video game generations correct here, yeah, there was this bigger leap forward when you went from an Atari twenty six hundred or a Coleco to the uh, you know to the the Nintendo Entertainment System, and. You know, especially when you when you look to the next generation, when we started to get the you know the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo, again the graphics in the arcade and the home port of it were starting, you know that that margin was starting to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. We're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves, but 
this and I think in a way this proved a little bit beneficial for the companies that made arcade games because since video game uh, home systems were starting to look better and sound closer to the arcade counterparts in order to thrive as a arcade manufacturer you really had to focus on making games where the control or the gimmick couldn't easily be replicated on a home system well right that's actually a really good point too and i think another thing too is it was kind of the kick in the backside that these teams that these companies needed to kind of move forward because for the longest time i mean they just rested on their laurels you know it's just like oh well you know people go to the arcade they're gonna like it and then here comes the Nintendo, here comes the sort of the Sega Master System, you know, and then stepping a, going a step forward, here comes the Super Nintendo. And Midway, Bally, Taito, um, all these companies are going, wait, wait a second. People are going to stay home and not go to the arcade. Let's set this bar higher. So that's you make a really good point. Yeah, and because uh, you got to keep in mind that, you know, the well, also in a way, I guess the way I see it, home video game industry and the arcade industry have kind of had this love-hate relationship with each other where sometimes they can feed ideas from the arcade into the home systems. Let's say you had a game that was doing fairly well in the arcades and you wanted to make a home version of it. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, you could try to make a close port, but sometimes they would just take the title or the basic premise of the game and they would they would totally make an entirely different game, but with some familiar elements. Do you have an example of that? Uh, yes. Actually, one example I can think of is Bionic Commando. Oh, yep. And again, we talked about that when we were discussing video game music, is that, um, you know, you got to keep in mind that that video game in the arcade, its purpose is to suck as many quarters out of your wallet as possible. Whereas the home version... Well, yeah, you might be paying 30, 40 bucks for a home video game, you know, but you don't, you want to, it's going to be a different play experience. Exactly. Now, if you compare the home version of Bionic Commando to the arcade, they do have that similar element where you can just basically shoot left and right, but the big play mechanic is you got that Bionic arm that you're swinging around on. Whereas in the arcade version it's one hit and you're dead and also of course you know you you can get a special weapon but when you die you lose your special weapon in the home version well when you start out it's one hit and you die but you know you you eventually power up your life meter where uh you know you can finally take a few hits and you also you know you got more weapons that you could choose from as well sure now that you know what I'm, where I was going when I was mentioning that, can you think of any other games that maybe you saw in the arcade that turned out way different in the home systems? Um, I can. Um, one of the first, well, two of them that come to mind, and I'm going to piggyback off of your Bionic Commando. Um, I've always loved that game, and I played the home version before I played the arcade version. So going and seeing it at Bay Beach in Green Bay one day at the Nickel Arcade, I played it and I was like, what the heck is this? This is nothing close. This isn't even close to what it was. So this is kind of the reality versus fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and two that come to mind are actually uh, one of which is NARC. If you remember that game from oh, the arcade. Yeah. Yep. Um, played the heck out of that one. 
they made a home version for the 8-bit Nintendo, and it looked similar, but you could tell a graphical um, uh, what's it, graphical limitations. That's what I was trying to think <laughs> of. Um, you know, and it gave you the sense that you're playing it, but it, it doesn't compare to actually playing it, you know? Um, Gauntlet's another one. Gauntlet in the arcade basically had no end. You just played until you ran out of life, and Red Warrior is about to die. <laughs> And Red Whereas, Warrior needs food badly. And exactly, Red Warrior <laughs> shot the potion. Red Warrior is a dumbass. <laughs> Pretty much, exactly. You know, whereas the Nintendo version actually has a point. If you can call, it, you can call it this. There's actually an end goal for that game, which okay, um, I can buy that. But it's it was a really really weak goal, but it was still a goal nonetheless, as opposed to just being a quarter muncher. Exactly. Um, you know, Rampage. I mean, I'm sure everybody's played Rampage. Oh, one of um, my favorites in both the arcade and the home version actually wasn't too bad either. It was good, but it pissed me off, and here's the reason why. I remember renting it one time from our local grocery store. I got 150 days into it, and my system froze. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I was so mad. I I took it back that same day. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> yeah, and one arcade game that, again, and I've... Long-time listeners to the show, you might remember that I've, I have actually dove into this topic before. Uh, in one of my earlier episodes, uh, my guest Josh Hadley and I, we did an episode called When Arcade Games Come Home. And we talked about some of the changes that these games go through when they go from the arcade to the home system, where, yeah, a lot of times you have these graphical limitations. But when you're making a home game... You know, I think the developer, they they might want to try to find ways to experiment with the game to make it more enjoyable or more logical for that home setting. And one of the games I mentioned then, and I've talked about this game here and there, Willow. Now, have you ever okay. played Willow for the NES and Willow for the arcade? I played it for the arcade, which I, if, if I remember it was Capcom, it was kind of like a Magic Sword type game. Yes, uh, side-scrolling where there were some stages where you could only play as Willow. There were other stages where you could play as Mad Mardigan. And then I think like the last couple stages, you get to choose whoever you want. Right. Um, it wasn't the home version more of like an adventure where you have to like solve puzzles and things? Yes, the, the home version was more in the vein of Legend of Zelda where it was top-down okay. perspective, and it went far beyond what happened in the movie. Some of the familiar characters are in there, but the only playable character is Willow. And one of the things I really liked about it is, you know, you know Willow, he used a sword and a shield, which, you know, he doesn't do in the in the movie, but it actually worked out really well the way they did it for the home system. Mm -hmm. And again, there's this rumor, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but... Uh, supposedly Willow originally was going to be a different game entirely, but then Capcom got the license to make a home version of Willow and they, you know, redid some graphics, you know, and then slapped the Willow title on it. Fortunately, it ended up working really well. So if you haven't had a chance to play Willow for the Nintendo, recommend it if you, it, it's one of those games that I think you're better off if you have the opportunity to play it. I'll have to check that out. Yep. And now going back to the arcade. So what are, what do you think is probably the, one of the games that made a really just blew your mind 
when you were a, a young child playing games in the arcade? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I'll have to preface it with this. is Not only have I been to the arcades many, many times, I also worked at one. Um, and then my dad used to bartend at one of the local taverns. So occasionally when he needed me to bring him something, I would come in there and, you know, he'd give me a quarter and I could play games at the bar, which, of course, is another place other than laundromats and pizza yeah. bars that they had games. So I've been exposed to lots of games. Oh, God, what has blown my mind? Um, Sinistar. Oh, yes. That game, and you'll pardon me for saying this, but scared the hell out of me. You're not alone. Just playing it, it was you know the the voice acting whatever was kind of scary the sounds or whatever but even the attract mode you're not even playing it you'll be standing next to it and this is actually a bar memory where i'm throwing darts with my mom and all of a sudden it's like run coward the hell was that and it terrified me as a kid oh yes and then there's that distinctive whenever sinistar destroys you that roar you know Exactly. I got goosebumps right now just thinking about that because that is one of those memories that's just like, I still, when I play that game, get kind of freaked out whenever I hear that voice because I know what's coming. Yeah, and then another one of my favorite lines in for that is, Beware I live. Another, well, one of the games I'd have to say that really blew my mind when I first saw it, Dragon's Lair. Oh, yeah. Again, back then, I didn't know about Laserdisc systems. And I was just kind of like, okay, why is this game look like a cartoon? Exactly. Why does it look like you're playing a cartoon when all the other games around it, you're just moving a, something that vaguely looks like a spaceship, you know? And it's like, I, I, you know, of course, now I know the, the game has been demystified for me. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. You know, because I know now that it's, yeah, it was basically a cartoon. It's just that uh, the way it was, it, it operated when this, the, the game detected that you made a certain input, whether it was a joystick movement or pressing a button, you know, then it, it skipped to another part of the laser disc. Right. Now, in addition to Dragon's Lair, a couple other games that use that same laser disc technology. And again, that really blew my mind away. There's a, I forgot the name of the company, but uh, they made, the first game I remember seeing was called Mach 3. And what caught my eye is that there was real footage of, you know, you flying over like a desert or a city or a country or whatever. And they put the, the computer graphics of, you know, the player and the enemies over that. Now in Mach 3, you had a jet fighter, which I believe was an F-14 Tomcat, you know, blowing away other, you know, helicopters and missiles and stuff like that. But they also stepped it up when they made another game called Us vs. Them. Now, in this game, this was the first time I ever remember seeing cutscenes that actually told the story, uh, where it would go back and forth between the, you know, what was happening in the command center and what was going on with the pilots that were fighting off an alien invasion. So you can, if you go to YouTube, uh, you can look up the, you know, gameplay footage of both Us vs. Them and Mach 3, and you'll probably understand why, as a, as a young child, why that would have stood out for you when, again, you, you look at other games like, you know, Pac-Man and Space Invaders, and it's like, hey, how are they getting the, such realistic graphics in that video game? 
Yeah, um, Dragon's Lair, um, I didn't have as much exposure to it as it sounds like you did, but I do remember trying out at our local arcade and, you know, one or two tokens. Actually, I think that was like a three or four token one. I don't remember um, it was expensive. that much. Um, I always remember it just being a quarter, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did do a two token one on that machine just because... It was hard. You know, just because the... Uh, you know, it, it was using a different type of technology to make you play the game. And it was new. I think that was probably it. Because like most games that are that are at the arcade, in my experience at least, like when they're brand new, they're usually 50 cents or 75 if it was towards the later end of the years. Um, but then they drop it down to one. Like, in fact, I remember uh, Mortal Kombat 2. When that game first came out, it was 50 cents all the way. And then, you know, once three came out, once other games came out, um, it bumped it down to a token or a quarter. That's one of the other things that I think contributed to the decline. And again, possibly just desperation here because, you know, again, when the home video game technology started to close in on what was happening in the arcades, well, the arcades probably saw a bit of a, a drop in business. So in order to make more revenue, they probably had to take those newer games and make them two-quarter games just to try to bring in a little bit more income. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, for those of us who had limited income back then, that was a a pretty bad thing because, okay, you know, if my my weekly discretionary income was $3, well, now I went from being able to play 12 games to only being able to play six. Right. And I have to say that personally, I don't know about yourself, but honestly, when it came down to the arcade, when they started, you know, increasing the token prices for things is kind of when I moved over to more pinball. Yeah. And I've never really been much of a big pinball guy, but there've been, I know they've tried to do some pretty cool things with the pinball machines where, uh, there was this one, I think it was called black hole where if you got it into a certain hole, the the ball dropped into a, a another you know another uh, part of the pinball machine and there was a, like a little mini game in there. Sure, yeah, and there's a few of them that have done that. Like there's a haunted house one that, that Stein I think did that had an upside down playfield, like to the point where the flippers were pointing at you instead of you know at the playfield. So you had to try to do this differently in this haunted house where it has like the little howling and um, wolves and the thunder and lightning going off and everything. But I digress. Um, that's what I did when I couldn't afford the games. But then again, that also made me want to get more money before I went to the arcade again. So what are some other games that you remember from, you know, about the early to mid 80s? Because, you know, of course, we all remember the classics like, you know, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, oh, yeah. Donkey Kong Jr., Space Invaders. But when about the mid 80s, that's when we really started to see, I think, a uh, a bit more variety in the arcade games. What are some other games from around the mid eighties that really stood out for you? Well, let's see. I mean, for me, I can think of the certain games that are standing out. I'm not sure if they were mid eighties or if they were early nineties. Um, but I just know certain games that are out there. One of which came up. If you remember way back in the day, they had track and field. Oh yeah. I remember that game. They had a anime type version called Newman athletics had four different people and it was the same, you know, wail on the buttons as fast as you can and then try to hit the middle one to do whatever. But this one was, again, it was very anime-based, and it was like superhuman. Like, when instead of throwing a javelin, you throw a cruise missile. 
Um, there is one too where like when you have to, instead of just drag, um, running, you actually had to beat a drag racer that was running next to you. I mean, it was, again, it was, it was silly and it was one that unless you could wail on the buttons really, really fast, you weren't going to do well. Um, but it was still fun and just the anime pop to it really kind of jumped out for me. One of the games you mentioned before, that's always been one of my favorites, Gauntlet. I oh, yeah. do not know how many quarters I pumped into the the gauntlet machine at my local arcade and my local roller skating rink back then. But I, I think the big appeal for Gauntlet was the fact that it was a four player game where you know you oh, were yeah. all playing at the same time. It's not like you know, some of the other games like Pac-Man or Donkey Kong where you had to alternate. And the fact that you had four characters, each with their own strengths and weaknesses you know, that's what really made it stand out for me because, uh, well, you mentioned you liked Gauntlet as well. Who was your mm-hmm. favorite character in Gauntlet? You know, I played the blue, uh, was it the Valkyrie, I think? Yes. Because she seemed to have, she wasn't as strong as the warrior, but she had better speed and her magic was better. Not as good as the war, the wizard, of course, but nobody wanted to be the elf. <laughs> I mean, they just didn't. And if somebody wanted to be the red warrior, great. You know, I'll take the blue Valkyrie, but then I'm going to run circles around you. Yeah, the Valkyrie was always my favorite as well, mainly because I I thought she was the most well-balanced, but I really liked the defense that she had. That was her strong suit, which, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're playing a game that's designed to kill you off as fast as possible, yeah, having a, a bit more defense so you don't take as much damage, that really helps. Oh, yeah. And now looking back on this, I mean, as an adult, I look back and go, God, they screwed us as kids. Because even when you're just standing there, you're losing because you put a quarter and I think you get like 500 hit points or whatever. And even just standing there, not getting touched by anything, your hit points are going down. It's like, what the heck, dude? Yeah, a new new take on the time limit, which I've never been crazy about games with time limits, but that's that's a topic for a different show. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Um. Let's see, what else came out? Oh, um, I know they ported this one over to the PlayStation 1, I think it was. It was called Cyber Sled. It was a really, it was a, um, a tank one, obviously, that you would actually sit in. It had bells and whistles. I mean, like police lights up top and, um, you could do one or two players at once, one player against a computer or two people battling against each other. You're doing, it was polygon based and you're doing tanks with machine guns or missiles. And there was, you know, a fast tank with low, with high speed, but low armor. There was a heavy armored tank that had really strong guns, but was slow as sin. There was the balanced one. And I remember, um, I remember actually playing against the, the guy who, the manager of the arcade a lot. And he was, I mean, he was almost unbeatable. I mean, he would get in there and like, honestly, it was one of those where if he wanted certain people to leave who'd been hawking the game all day. He would get in their play, kill him off, and then just walk away. <laughs> See, another one of my uh, games that I, I really enjoyed a lot was Play Choice 10. Oh, yeah. That's a time limit one, though. Yep. That's, that's the only thing that, well, it was kind of a strength, but kind of a weakness. Because the way Play Choice 10 was, it basically was an arcade game that had Nintendo Entertainment System games. But 
sometimes they also had Famicom games in there as well. Like a lot of the old NES games you could play, you know, of course, Super Mario Brothers. Eventually they introduced Mario 2 and Mario 3. Uh, see, uh, Pro Wrestling for the NES. That was one that I always liked playing on the, the PlayChoice 10 as well. But one of the games that we never saw on the NES, but um, was, you know, released in Japan. Uh, now, you're probably familiar with the NES game Goonies 2. Yes, absolutely. There was actually a Goonies 1 released, which this one... Now, I have to say I do like Goonies 2 better. Goonies 1 had a very similar graphic style and feel, but instead of, you know, using your yo-yo to attack, basically Mikey just runs around kicking things, though you could also get bombs and slingshots. Uh, It it didn't have the Metroid-type feel where you were exploring this expansive base, but I still always enjoyed playing that one as well. I remember on the Place Choice 10, um, I played Ninja Gaiden, um, which is one of my favorite NES games, which is Nintendo hard. It's a very difficult game. And Castlevania. I love Castlevania. To this day, that is one of my favorite franchises. However, whatever they did in the Place Choice 10, it, they ramped the difficulty up. Like even for Super Mario Brothers, the Goombas walked faster. The time went faster. In fact, the timer just ran down. You can almost get run out of time on the very first level if you don't run. Um, and I mean, I can understand that they want you to get through it, but it was almost unfair. I mean, I guess the, the thing that was kind of a, see, it was kind of weird the way play choice 10 worked. I think like for each quarter you put in, you got like three minutes of play time, but let's say you started playing excite bike and you decided, okay, not really getting into this. Well, then all you could do is you just press the reset button, and as long as you've got time left, let's say you wanted to try Pro Wrestling or Super Mario Brothers 3, you could. And now, of course, the problem with that is, you know, well, if you got really good at a game, you could possibly make it through in one quarter. But you can't really do that on a Play Choice 10 because you got to keep popping the quarters in to get more time. You know, and I will say this, though, the Play Choice 10s were nice because they were kind of a sampler platter, as it were. Um, you could try out a whole bunch of different games, and especially because they had games that were currently for sale on the home, like Mario 2, Mario 3, etc. So if you want to be like, hey, I want to try Mario 2 to see if it's worth buying or not, it's almost like renting it, but playing it in the Play Choice 10, which was kind of nice. Yeah, and it's like, okay, I'll pop a quarter or two in and, you know, try it for a few minutes, see if I like it, and then that will help me decide whether I want to dump, you know, $40 into this new game. Yeah. Um, Let's see, what other ones? Um, Tron. I mean, Tron blew my mind because, first of all, that is my all-time favorite movie, period. I mean, that's, that's the first one I will answer all the time, the 1982 Tron. But when I saw the arcade one, which did better than the movie... Um, you got to be Tron. You got to do the light cycles, which was horribly difficult. If anybody's ever played it, it was really, really hard. Um, you got to do that. You got to do the weird spider things. Um, the, oh God, the, the tanks, cone. which also was very difficult, the cone. And they think those were the four and it just got faster and faster and harder. I mean, it's not uncommon when you play that one to have maybe a one minute game. Yeah, because, again, that that was designed to suck as many quarters out of your wallet as it possibly could. Um, But, yeah, Tron was one that I enjoyed. Another game that I had a lot of fun with, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
With, uh, the original or the Turtles in Time? The original. Um, I've never seen Turtles in Time in an arcade. Just on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, that's the only place I've seen it, just on the Super Nintendo. I've never seen uh, Turtles in Time. What did, did it? Was it ever released in the arcade? It was. Um, I've seen, in fact, when we were uh, talking between the break here about uh, that arcade website, I've seen it there. I'm like, wow, I had literally never, ever seen it in a stand-up machine. Yeah, and, uh, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that was always a lot of fun because, you know, of course, they had the digitalized voices with, you know, Kawabunga, and, you know, you die, and it's like, shell shock. <laughs> um, I'm piggybacking off of that. If you remember, they had a four-player Simpson one also. Oh, yeah, that was a lot of fun, too. I, because X- I'm a comic book nerd, X-Men. Oh, yep, I was about to go there, too, and that was a six-player one. You can. There was there was actually three different cabinets. There was a two player, a four player, and a six player. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, because I only remember seeing I think the six player one, uh, but that was a lot of fun. Because yeah, you had see Colossus, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Storm, and for some reason Dazzler. You know, and honestly, their powers were ridiculous. I mean, Wolverine shooting laser beams with with his claws, whatever. Everybody played Colossus because of the roar that he did that destroyed everything on the screen. Yep, and then of course it had one of the best examples of English, Welcome to Die. Oh, yep. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and and of course uh, the arcade also gave birth, I think, to one of the genres that's still going strong today, the head-to-head street fighting games. Now, oh God! Of course, before I mean, Street Fighter Two. Let's face it; that pretty much launched the that genre. I mean, there oh, yeah, were because yeah. yeah, there were head-to-head fighting games before that, but they really weren't as good. I mean, the first Street Fighter game is pretty terrible, uh, mainly because the moves are very difficult to pull off. Um, the times I played that game, I mean, it's like okay, you're lucky if you can pull off a Hadouken once. Whereas in Street Fighter Two, they really improved it where I can pull off as many Hadoukens as I want. You can um, spam it. Yeah, exactly. And now, of course, before then, you had games like Karate Champ, which oh yeah, is uh, yeah. Now, you don't even need to go any further. I know exactly what you're talking about. Just like Ring King. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the Street Fighter Two, I think, pretty much launched the uh, you know the fighting genre as we know it today, and I, I think it's because that's where it really perfected the controls. And Mm -hmm. what was cool is not only did you have multiple characters, each with their own strengths and weaknesses, but, you know, each one also had their own individual special moves. Um, Right. Some of them could get really cheap. Like, for example, Guile, if you knew how to play him, you know, he was actually pretty easy to go through the game with because, you know, you duck down and do your low kicks. And if the enemy tries to jump at you, well, then you jump up and do your sonic kick. Yep. We, I, I remember when Super, uh, or I'm sorry, Street Fighter 2 first came out. In fact, I think I went to the arcade the day they unveiled it. And there was maybe 40 people around it. Um, we had, we have a high concentration of Asian Americans up in our area. And they ran the game. I mean, if you wanted to play, you basically had to get in line behind them. And if you, you beat one of them, they would tag in a friend who would beat you, and then they'd take the game back over. <laughs> it's I'm if I I wish I was kidding, um, which kind of turned me off to fighting games until, and I have to say, my favorite fighting game of all time, Killer Instinct. 
That one, um, yeah, that one was pretty good. I remember seeing that both in the arcade and uh, the Super Nintendo version actually turned out pretty well as well. Surprisingly, I mean, considering how much, if you've ever played the arcade one, how much they compressed into a Super Nintendo cartridge was insane. Um, You know, I had a friend who played Primal Rage, the fighting one with dinosaurs. That was all right. Um, Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 were good. It was one they got 3, one they got all the super combos, which I'm like, I can't, I can barely remember my phone number. I don't need to remember <laughs> 45 different combos just to trap somebody in a corner. Yeah. Samurai Showdown. That was, oh, that was yes. another one of my favorite ones as well. Oh my God. And just like every other fighting game, you can get through the game to get to the final boss and he's cheap as hell. Yep. That's what I hate about some of those final bosses is they've got this one, they got that one move that they spam over and over again. But you mentioned Mortal Kombat. It does three quarters of a health bar. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned Mortal Kombat. Just out of curiosity, one of Raiden's moves in the first Mortal Kombat one is, you know, he he flies across the screen and pushes you and he Mm -hmm. says something. What did you always think he was saying when he did that move? Oh, God, I had no idea. I mean, it's he just screamed something. In fact, in the second one, it was the same thing. Um, but it's just like, I have no idea. It's just like in the second one with uh, Luke Kang's bicycle kick, you know, it's just sounded like somebody like gibberish talking, but I'm sure it's something. Well, because when uh, when I first saw someone do that, that raid in move where he flies across the screen, I thought it sounded like he was saying, I am Superman. I think I seem to recall something similar to that. Yeah, it's like, I, just, um, I. It's, I, I just yeah. said, I thought it sounded like he was saying, I am Superman. <laughs> Which, now, you know, it makes to, sense because he's flying. Exactly. Um, I have to actually piggyback on something that you mentioned earlier about how, you know, the Laserdisc games. Mortal Kombat was one of the first ones that successfully, in my opinion, at least, used digitized actors. Oh, yeah, that's true because... Um, I mean, there were attempts to do digitalized stuff before. Probably the one that sticks out for me is there was an arcade game based on the rock band Journey. Now, this was an old arcade game, like early 80s. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, it's nowhere near as as good looking as they were in Mortal Kombat. Just just say it. It was terrible. Yeah. (laughs) But still, I mean, that's probably one of the first times I remember seeing them using digitalized actors as the sprites. Right. So we've talked about some of our favorite and memorable games from the uh, the Golden Age and a little bit beyond. And, you know, most people put the decline around the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, just as, as you said, you think it's because, you know, you know, this is when the home consoles and the arcade consoles were starting to get a little closer together. And this really forced the video game manufacturers to make arcade games that had new and catchy gimmicks. And I think this is kind of relevant because this does somewhat translate into what we saw in the early 90s because this is where we started to see the rise of, some people call them family fun centers, others call them family entertainment centers. Where right. and, and let me give you an example. Uh, here in Appleton, we have a place, Sunset, I'm sorry, not Sunset, Funset Boulevard. Now, they do have a small selection of your classic arcade games. They've also got a lot of the newer ones. 
Um, but not only that, they've got the redemption games where, you know, you can spend $20 to win a prize that probably would have cost you about three or four if you would have bought it in a store. Um, but they also have things that are like, they have a, a, a merry-go-round. They've got bumper cars. They've got a laser tags uh, there. Uh, see, they've also got a movie theater and, you know, a diner. So it, it's uh, the thing I like about it's, you know, a nice little place I can go with my family. You know, we can, uh, if we, assuming we don't go to the diner there to eat or we don't see a movie, you know, we could, you know, each take 10, 15 bucks, you know, have some fun there. Uh, also, they've got a mini golf course outside and batting cages. So do you see these family fun centers? Do you see this as a step forward from the arcade, a step back, or do you see it more as like a natural progression? Um, I personally think it's a bit of an evolution. Um, I have to say, you know, the reason I made my noise when you mentioned Ticket Redemption is because when I worked at the the Aladdin's Castle, Ticket Redemption was the bane of my existence. I hate Ticket Redemption games. Um, not only refilling the machines, but everything else. It was just a complete pain, just like packing everything in the crane machines so that people couldn't get it. <laughs> I mean, I just felt dirty by doing it, you know. Um, but that being said, they did what they had to do to evolve because if it was just going to try to solely exist on people coming in to play arcade games, you know, I can spend $30, get a machine or get a uh, cartridge for my Nintendo or get a disc for my PlayStation or whatever. And then I'm done paying for it. I don't have to get out. I don't have to leave. I can sit on my couch and wear my bathrobe while I play whatever game. So they wanted to add those ticket redemptions to make it more family oriented to be so that everybody goes, you know, yeah. Okay. So mom and dad can play their classic games, their Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, whatever, you know, little Timmy can go in there and play some little dress coin flipper game that maybe he'll win a thousand tickets and he can get a bunch of candy to get hopped up on. Um, Kind of like, you know, and honestly, I think the Chuck E. Cheese did that before almost anybody else. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see, uh, places like Chuck E. Cheese or Showbiz Pizza as being the forerunners of the, uh, you know, of the uh, uh, the Family Fun Center. Though usually, I don't think anyone ever really went to Chuck E. Cheese to just play video games. You know, usually you went there and you you know you got pizza and you know a soda and some breadsticks or whatever before you went and spent you know five ten dollars on video games. It's funny you should mention that because I've been to Chuck E. Cheese exactly once in my life. It was the one on Highway 100 in Milwaukee area. Oh, I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> and the one time I was there, I didn't eat a single piece of pizza. I went in there. We played video games. I went through this little weird little crawling maze that was with the strobe, strobe lights. lights that I freaked out because I got turned around in it <laughs> <laughs> and then watched the little animatronic people and then we left. I didn't eat a single piece of food when we went there. We went to Dunkin' Donuts afterwards, actually. But, um, you know, so, I mean, I get what you're saying on that one, too. And the family fun centers, you know, fast forwarding to nowadays, like your Dave and Buster's, like that fun set boulevard, which sounds pretty damn cool, actually. Um, it's a place for everybody to get into. And now people are tapping into the retro by having these classic games and modern games next to it where, you know, you can go in there and play Pac-Man next to the newest Star Wars game where it feels like you're inside of an X-Wing. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, Star, the Star Wars trilogy 
um, arcade game is a lot of fun too. Because I mean, going again, going back to the early games. I mean, remember they had the old uh, Atari Star Wars game where it was just oh, the, flying the roster the, graphics. Yep. And, you know, they did have the voice, like, you know, they had the Ben Kenobi, you know, you know, the force will be with, be with you always, but... And it was hard as sin. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was always one of my favorite games, too. Uh, there have just been so many really awesome games that I, I haven't even talked about, but... Um, oh, yeah. But, yeah, and I, I think I'm on the same page with you where I see it as a natural progression because, you know, think of it this way. The, the Family Fun Centers first started appearing around the early 90s. So if you've got someone who was, let's say, a teenager playing video games in the late 70s, early 80s, fast forward 10, 15 years, that person is now, you know, they they might be married and they might have a few kids. So, you know, you, you maybe you didn't want to take your kids to the same type of arcade you went to, but, you know, these family fun centers they're the kind of place that, yeah, you can go with your family and you could easily spend a couple hours there. You know, you could have, uh, you know, have something to eat at the diner and, you know, maybe play some video games or if, uh, if you're going to go see a movie there, you know, maybe before you see the movie or maybe after, you know, go grab a bite to eat, go play a few video games. And, uh, again, the, the, the fun set Boulevard down here in Appleton, uh, they even have an area designed specifically for younger kids. So when my son was like, you know, three, four years old, we took him to that area there. And, you know, he always had a lot of fun in that place as well. You know, and it just makes me think, too, let's let's use your same teenager as an example. You know, teenagers don't want to hang around with their family. I mean, it's just that's the way I was when I was that <laughs> age. I'm just like, I don't want to do this. But then okay, we're going to, let's use Chuck E. Cheese as an example, or let's use Fun Set Boulevard, actually, because they got everything. Now, I can go with my whole family. If I want to play video games or go hit the batting cages or whatever, if they want to go play in the ball pit or do whatever, I can because we're all together. And I think that's what they were striving for. Yep, and again, that's why I always see it as that natural progression because, uh, you know, again, you, you made a really good point. Yeah, when you're a teenager, you generally don't want to hang around with your family, but... Now that video game playing teenager is now in his 30s and he's got, you know, a, a husband or a you know, wife and a couple of kids. Yeah, he needs something that he can do with his, with his or her entire family. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I have to say that I think the games have actually come to their own. The arcade has come to its full circle in the respect that nowadays it's actually kind of becoming a little bit more popular to be just a straight up arcade with more retro feel to it and i'll give you an example of this um in des moines iowa um there was a there's a place called updown it's a kind of a retro bar where you can still get drinks or whatever on the screens they play 80s stuff last time i was there they played american gladiators (laughs) sweet and they have yeah exactly and they have um probably about maybe oh i don't know um maybe about 30 or 40 stand-up arcade machines everything is set for a quarter and on Sundays, they do a six-pack and a pound where you get a six-pack of beer and a pound of tokens. Um, they've got pinball. They've got arcades. And it's just like you remember being at a regular arcade. It's, you know, it's kind of darkish. The music is loud. You've got a lot of voices in here. And it's just being back. And it just is childhood with beer. <laughs> and that's popping up all over the place, actually, because there's a place out in Colorado, I think, called One Up, that does the same thing. Um 
And then if you want to talk about one of the Kings of Arcade in Bloomington, Illinois, and I went there for my birthday last year, it's called the Galloping Ghost Arcade. They have over 500 standard arcade machines, including pinball and everything else. It's $15 for all you can play. Every machine is set on free play. Cool. You know, and there's something similar that I saw in 2015 when my family was in Disneyland, Disney World. Um, at Disney Springs, they have this place, Disney Quest. Now, unfortunately, it is scheduled to close this year in July. So if you, you know, so uh, if you think this place sounds cool, you might want to jump on a jet to Florida the first time you get and try to get there before uh, July. Now, the the only reason we went to Disney Quest is because the resort we stayed at, they gave us two free passes. Normally, I think it was like 30 or $40. But okay. um, what you do is you go in and it's, well, it's basically a, a huge arcade where, you know, they had a lot of your new ones. Um, and I, I remember, I, I this just touched me right in the heart. I remember my uh, son and I, we were walking around and we came to the classic arcade games. And he's like, look, Dad, classic arcade games. You can relive your childhood. And it's like, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's sweet. But... You know, they had, of course, they didn't really have any of the redemption games, but, you know, all the games were set to free play. So, nice. uh, I said, I don't think I would have paid 30 or 40 bucks for it, but, you know, since we got the free passes, why not? And there's one game that I did play there that I really enjoyed uh, called Tank, Tank, Tank. Okay. Where... It's designed to be a multiplayer game where, where, okay, maybe there's just one person sitting next to you, but you can network it with other arcades or other, you know, game systems within a, a certain area. So all of you could either fight it out against each other or they had another mode that was pretty fun. Uh, you'd had like a big monster, like a Godzilla type monster, and you would work together to take this big monster out. And, you know, you could also, uh, it also would take your picture. So that way, like if, uh, you know, when my son, you know, killed me and made my tank blow up, it would show his picture and like, you know, he killed you. It's like, no, now I know who, (laughs) now I know who to go, uh, try to, to, to hunt down after I'm done playing. (laughs) You know, and they, they made a Mario Kart arcade game within the last maybe 10 years or so that did that also. They have a little webcam up top that, it would take your picture and it would put you in the game. Cool. Yeah, I've seen that, but I've never actually played the uh, Mario Kart arcade game. But yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty neat. I mean, I would want to see Disney, of course, being the Tron fan. And, you know, Flynn was the owner of the arcade. So I think they still either still or at least one time had a Flynn's arcade there. Um, oh, I would I would be in heaven. Well, like I said, if uh, if you want to see Disney Quest, unfortunately, you've only got till about July third, and then it's um, I guess they're replacing it with the NBA Experience. So I don't know. Really? Given a choice, I think I'd rather have the arcade. But you know, they as had other, and they had other types of games there as well. But it, it was definitely uh, a lot of fun, and you know, for the the couple hours we spent there. So I have to ask: you mentioned that you your your heart has been touched by a lot of different games. Honestly, if you had to pick one game, like right now, if you could have one game in your home or apartment or wherever you're at right now, and like pristine arcade machine, what would it be? Your favorite game of all time? Hmm. That's a good question. I would have to say for arcade games, 
one of my favorites was called Three Wonders, and there, there were th- it was three games in one. Uh, there was a puzzle game that was you know just kind of its own thing, but the other two games were actually related to each other. The first one was called Midnight Wanderers, and it. Uh, it, it played very similar to Ghost and Goblins because it was, you know, it was made by Capcom, but it was nowhere near as difficult. Uh, plus, you could also shoot up, you could shoot down, and you had this sliding maneuver. But you had these two like elf guys that were, um, you know, trying to. I think they were trying to rescue a princess uh, or something, or, or no, actually, they were trying to recover some artifact. I think because the next game in Three Wonders had. The same characters, except it was called like Chariot of the Sun, I think. Um, but yeah, Three Wonders is one definitely up there. It's one of my f- all-time favorites. Uh, Spy Hunter is probably a cl- really close second as well. <laughs> okay. So what I, about I, you? If you please. could, uh, if you could have an arcade game in great condition in your home, what what would it be? Mario Brothers. Hmm, okay. The original Mario Brothers, you know, where they're in the sewers hitting the turtles from underneath and everything else, that to this day, uh, as we spoke about emulators and things before, I will play that game every single time. When we went to Galloping Ghost, I played that one. I got one of the world high scores. Cool. Um, I When we went to Up Down in Des Moines, got all 10 high scores on that one, and then they wiped it the next day. <laughs> but either way, that's that is I could play that one all the time, always. Yeah, and I like how in Super Mario Brothers 3, they did introduce that mini game where if uh, both players went to a cert- the, the same spot at a certain time, you could go into that little mini game where it yep. was playing like a, a level of, of the original Mario Brothers. Yep, and then on any of the Mario Advance games on the Game Boy Advance, um, Mario Advance, like what is it, 1 through 4, I think every single one of them has that. Super Mario Brothers game on it. Oh yeah, and then uh, of course we're talking about it. Like I, I remember before when you were mentioning uh, Sinstar, Sinistar. Mm-hmm. Another game that I remember from early on that it could be a lot of fun, um, but I, I remember it because of the digitalized voices. Wizard of War. I had that on Atari, and it was creepy. <laughs> yeah, and because in the arcade, I mean, it kind of had this psychedelic late seventies style artwork on it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the game graphics were actually well. Of course, it was simple because this was back in the you know like early eighties, uh, right. where you had two guys in spacesuits that would go through this maze and shoot at things. But there was this uh, the the enemy character, the wizard, who would often uh, you know sometimes he would say things. But since voice synthesis was still pretty primitive at this time, most of the time it sounded like. I will get you, warrior. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> you know, usually about the only thing you can make out was warrior and ah, 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 ah. Though, and then if it was an older machine that hadn't been taken care of, it would just sound like mush. Yeah. <laughs> Though I think one time um, he said something like, "My magic is stronger than your weapons, warrior." Ha 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 ha. But yeah, <laughs> Wizard of War. That's when I always remember, just for that reason, that trying to understand what the heck that voice was saying. <laughs> Berserk was the one for me because they had it in our local, um, like it was it was called Kresge's in Wausau, and it was kind of a Kmart affiliate type thing. But they had that, and it had the attract mode that would actually talk to you as it 
said like got the human or deposit quarter or quarters nearby and it was this digital voice that you're just used to hearing music and sound effects all of a sudden it's like wait who are you talking to like that, that's weird yeah <laughs> oh yeah and then you, you actually mentioned this uh game earlier magic sword oh um, yeah that was another one that was a lot of fun uh it was a side-scrolling platform type game where uh you know, at, at, at the end of each stage, your weapon or your armor would power up. But uh, one of the big uh, features of that game is you would get keys and you would, you know, you'd unlock a door. And sometimes there would be an ally, like there was an Amazon woman that fired a crossbow. There was a ninja. There was a wizard, a priest, a knight, um, something like barbarian guy. And if you got the same guy, um, you know, again, it would power him up. So that game oh, was the ninja was BA. Yeah, I forgot what the ninja's ability was. Wasn't he like um, just he like throwing throw the... stars? I think. Yeah. So yeah, magic sword. That one was a lot of fun. You know, and then I mean, there was Night Striker, the one where you had the little dog that was your companion that you could sick him on the bad guys and then throw him with hit him with throwing stars. Um, Too crude was another one that basically are these big muscled up guys that are just it was just completely irreverent. It was hilarious, but it was irreverent. Um, and then we kind of talked about this during one of the breaks. Um, Midway came out with a ton of really good dual joystick games. The primary one, which is on the Midway collection, Smash TV. Yep. And uh, what started it off was uh, Robotron 2024, I think. Um, oh, God. The, that impossible game? Yeah. But actually, another one of those useless little uh, points of trivia. Do you know why that game was done with two joysticks? I don't. Well, the uh, designer of that game he actually had a broken hand and, you know, so it was in a cast, so he couldn't really do a lot of hitting a joystick. So that's what made him think about what a ge- what if we designed this game where you could move, you know, you, you moved and fired with joysticks instead of firing with a button. And, you know, so that, that actually worked out really well because you could move in one direction and fire in, you know, a totally different one. Uh, and this would later, we would later see that carried over into like smash TV and Total Carnage, just to, to name a couple examples. Yeah, and then if you even go further, I mean, some of the home games, like Geometry Wars, I think it is, that's on Xbox. Um, another dual joystick one. It's it's a psychedelic freakout. It's got really good music, but if you if the flashing and, like, whatever gets you a little bit sick to your stomach, I would try maybe sampling it before you buy it. Yeah, exactly. So, so let, let's flip the coin for a second. Is there any game that you played and you said, nope, I hate this. I will never, ever play this again. This is BS. Nope. Done. Hmm. Trying to think. Cause I mean, I, I know of course there've been uh, games that I didn't really, I play or that I played in the arcade and I didn't really like, um, honestly in the arcades, I would have to say I kind of had that feeling with mortal Kombat, um, uh, mainly because, I mean, when talking about Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter, I always preferred Street Fighter 2 just because with Mortal Kombat, the control always felt a lot stiffer, whereas with um, as with Street Fighter, the, the control just felt a lot more fluid. So I don't Delayed, hate Delayed, almost. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't hate Mortal Kombat. It's just as far as the arcade game itself, it's not one of my favorites. So what about you? So what are, is there an arcade game that you just totally despise and will not play? Yes, actually. It's called Pango. 
Okay, um, I remember it. It's been a long time since I played it. You are a little penguin guy, and you have to basically get these three um, the three ice pieces that are like have like a glowing diamond on them or something together, and you have to break ice cubes, and you can only push things. You can't pull it. It's like one of those push-pull puzzles on Legend of Zelda, okay. but without the fun. <laughs> um, it was really, really hard. Um, it, it, the music and sounds were really kind of grating, and I remember playing it at High Roller, or Roller Rink in Wausau, or Schofield, as it were, and because I only had one quarter left, and all the other games were two quarters, and I felt cheated because this game was terrible. And are there any arcade franchises that you really got into? Um. Well, you know, I kind of, again, Mortal Kombat, I kind of played like one and two. I didn't really get into the further ones. You know, franchises themselves, I mean, it's not that often that you play a game that like every version of the game is good. Um, you know, I think maybe the Donkey Kong franchise where Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., but then three was terrible, so I, just, I can't really even say that. So it's really kind of hard to say about a franchise. How about yourself? For me, it's the 1940X series. Now, I wasn't, okay. I wasn't too crazy about 1942, um, just because the the sound effects and music in that is just really irritating. But boring. Yeah, 1943 was better. Um, there was also another one. Uh, I think it was called like. 1944 Counter-Strike where, see the thing is in 1942 and 1943 you were fighting in the Pacific whereas uh, Counter-Strike moved it over to Europe but my favorite in the 1940X series is 1945 Strikers because you, you know you had a you had several different planes you could choose from and you know of course each one had their you know their their unique weapon style and i think my favorite was probably the one the flying pancake which is actually based off of a real plane believe it or not um oh, really but yeah strikers 1945 that one was a lot of fun um and i said just the, the, i i enjoyed with the exception of 1942 i did enjoy the other games in the 1940x series you know, and I have to say, I mean, if you looked at every arcade game that's ever been made, Japanese, American, everything, there is no shortage of top-scrolling shooting games. Like where you're playing as a plane or a spaceship or whatever. I mean, it's, I mean, you could go through and name dozens without even trying. Um, 1943 being one of them, of course. Um, my favorite of that type was Vapor Trail. Okay, I haven't played that one. Vapor Trail, you can play one of three different planes. One was, you know, fast with kind of a weak weapon. One was medium with a medium weapon. One was slow, but it has the most powerful weapon. And it had a, a guitar soundtrack to it that um, one of the game soundtracks that I actually ordered had that on there. And I was just like, wow, this is this blows my mind. This could be something people would listen to. And I think that's kind of what we touched on before. Um, and that's what came uh, kept me going back to that game. And then of course, uh, there was like a, the Space Harrier and, uh, um, oh God, what was the the, th the helicopter one that Sega did? Um, Thunderblade, I think? Thunderblade, yeah. Then they did one like that, but uh, Tadio, the same company who did, or Taito, I'm not trying to pronounce that, who did Space Invaders, did one called Night Striker. Where that one, you get to pick your path. It's from A to S, and like 
A goes up and splits to B and C and then B and C split, you know, two each way. And there's tunnel or in, you know, on the roads or the suburbs, or whatever else. And each level has a boss and you're flying this hovercraft that, you know, you can, you've got full joystick, you got missiles and, and shooting. But if you stay on the ground and actually have your wheels go, your, your score goes up exponentially. So that adds a whole new dimension to it. And that's one of those that I would play from start to finish any day. I love oh, yeah. that game. And one other one, this is my last one I want to talk about. Um, the Dungeons right. and Dragons games, because there were two of them. There was at least two that I know of. There was uh, Both of them were based in the Mistara game setting. And the first one I think was Tower of Doom. And then the third one, was, the second one was uh, Shadow over uh, Mistara, I think. Um, but okay. I did, they do have on the Wii Virtual Console, um, they do have the collection where you can get both of them. But what nice. was so fun about it, uh, it, it was Dungeons and Dragons. In the first one, you were limited to the elf, dwarf, fighter, or cleric. And then in the second one, they added the thief and the wizard. But it was a lot more complex than most uh, of the, you know, the side-scrolling beat-em-ups were at the time. Because, you, for example, you would pick up magic items and you could use them. Uh, for example, you might pick up a ring that lets you cast Cure Serious Wounds on yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So it could be tricky because you you, for, you also could carry a, multiple weapons, like um, a throwing hammer, uh, throwing knives, a bow. So since you had these multiple weapons, sometimes you had to... There was like a button you pushed to cycle through them. And it actually did do a couple of things that were true to Dungeons and Dragons. There's one boss I remember as a troll, and in order to defeat it, well, one of the items you can get are flaming oil. So, you, of course, you had to use the flaming oil to defeat the troll. But you also encountered various uh, shops along the way, because, of course, you pick up gold so you can buy more stuff. But you mentioned the multiple paths. It was the same way with... Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons games where you would get to a certain point and it'd be like, do we want to go this way or do we want to go this way? So it, it adds a lot of replayability for it. Oh, sure. And I do, I actually remember that one as well. And I just remember the, the first, I think it's the tower of doom one with that big dragon who oh, always yeah. cast poison on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the little uh, diamonds that were on the ground that if you step on them, you get frozen and everything else. It's just like, yeah, that's, you know, especially if you're not familiar with the, the D&D mythos, it's just like, this is a good beat-em-up game. But then you play it, if you are familiar, and like you're even like, wow, that's even a better beat-em-up game. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the last one I was just going to mention, I mean, because I could, we could go on from memories and everything else with Sunset Riders. Oh, that's, that was a fun one, too. Playing that with the, the Wild West, the four different uh, players you could be um, who had the different weapons, the one guy with the shotgun mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, when that one came to the Super Nintendo at home, I was pretty pumped because they did just such a great job with it. Mm-hmm. Well, as, as you said, we could probably go on for hours, but we've been going on for quite a bit. So, um, yeah, and I, I would definitely like to thank you for joining me, Lou, and especially for your patience, because as I said, we've, it's taken us about two hours to record this episode. Um, just because I've just been plagued with internet connection problems tonight. So thanks again for, uh, 
sticking with me on this, Lou. And Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, uh, certainly, uh, if you want to hear uh, more from Lou, um, he does have another show that I'm hosting on Point of Insanity Network. Uh, him and Chad, they do Musically Challenged. So why don't you go ahead and give us a quick pitch for Musically Challenged. Uh, Musically Challenged, um, Chad and I are running that one. Chad Knight, he's got his own um, Whose Podcast Is It Anyways, which is also hosted on Point of Insanity. And Chad and I talk to about pretty much whatever musical topics we want to. Um, past episodes have included uh, good cover songs or bad cover songs. And one of the more recent ones is songs dealing with alcohol in some form or way. So if you're interested and want to hear about uh, two musically challenged people, go ahead and give us a listen. Okay, well, thanks a bunch for joining us, everyone. And uh, you know, check out poigamestudio.podbean.com to check out some of the other shows. Uh, of course, you can find us on iTunes. And hey, feel free to stop by Point of Insanity Game Studio on uh, Facebook. Feel free to leave a comment or like the page. So thanks for tuning in and have a good evening or morning or afternoon whatever it is wherever you are and happy gaming